Uh, to give you context of what she termed Champagne Gate, um, <laughs> we have an all church retreat every year. We, we go out together, uh, even cancel Sunday. And on Friday night, I promised free champagne, and there was no free champagne. Um, but I was able to redeem that on Sunday and say, next Sunday, there will be free champagne. So it's official. There's free champagne today. You're like, now I can't wait for him to be done talking. Um, I want to read from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, there are four Gospels in the Scriptures that tell the story of Jesus, and they all culminate in His resurrection. It's all leading to this moment. This is the climax. This is the most important piece. And so here it is in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 through 10, and then 16 through 20. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, Don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He isn't here, he is risen from the dead, just as he said he would. Come, see where his body was lying, and now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but they were also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. They ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. And then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some of them doubted. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is God's word for us today. Uh, Easter is special. Um, there's no denying that, and I mean it in the broadest sense of the term. I don't mean it in pure religious terms, but Easter is special for a number of families because of family traditions. There's egg hunts and egg baskets and candy that has weird colors. And there's fresh clothes for spring that we all don together. Easter feels extra special for us this year as a church because I haven't been able to do this for two years. Two years ago, I just talked to a camera. I had no idea where you were and what you were doing in your pajamas. Last year, it was a smaller crowd, and we had masks, and we had to spread apart. This year, it's a gift to see this room full, to hear your voices sing aloud together, and it's going to be incredible to eat brunch with you. Easter is special. But part of the reason that Easter is special has nothing to do with family traditions, even though I'm glad that that tradition has brought you here to church with us today. It is the triumph of the story that God has been telling for all eternity. That from the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He made it good. He made it perfect. He made 
us, his children, sons and daughters. He declared us to be very good and beautiful and lovely. And then things started to break. In our rejection of God, everything started to fall apart. And God looked down on his people who were meant to experience life and joy and wholeness and health. And he only saw brokenness in relationships, in bodies, in the world. And from that moment that he saw it at first, he said, this will not always be the case. I have to fix this. And as a father who wants to help his children, he did whatever it took to step in. And the story goes on, and in comes Jesus to declare once and finally that God is not some distant deity, but he is willing to join his divinity to our humanity in such a way that we could see his love manifest every single day of his life on earth, and then even beyond that. So we saw in his life that he would see sickness, but not just see sickness. He'd see an opportunity for healing. That he would see brokenness of relationship and not see just a reality of people don't like each other, but a chance for reconciliation. And people began to follow him, believing that he was this promised Messiah, a new king that would establish a new nation, a political nation that finally would reign with justice and peace. But Jesus had other ideas. He's never what we expect. He likes to surprise us. And so he went to the cross, and as his disciples watched something they couldn't believe, he was crucified, his blood was shed, he died, and they had to bury him. And for a couple of days, it was silent. What did this mean? And then Sunday came, <laughs> and the resurrection came. And Jesus stood before them, wounds that were no longer bleeding because the work was finished, the blood was shed, forgiveness was offered and extended. A body not broken and beaten as it was on that Good Friday, but a body whole, restored, strong, in the state that God intended for you to live in constantly. And as they gathered, they were saying what we often say on these days, is this real? Can this be true? It seems too good to be true. It seems so out of bounds of our reality. And there's one verse that I want to hone in on today because I believe it encapsulates Resurrection Sunday for us. But it invites us to be exactly who you are in this moment today, but then also to join with Jesus and His divinity in His resurrection to see that there's more than who you are. There's more than what you've experienced. There's more that God wants you to have. And the resurrection declares it. And that verse is verse 17. In verse 17, it says, When they were gathered in Galilee, it says, When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. I wonder which you would be that day. The ones that were easily worshipped or the ones that were easily doubting. And I want to press into that not to challenge or convict the doubters, but to see that Jesus loves the doubters. He stands in front of them, receives their doubts, receives their worship, and then gives them his authority to go and change the world. He's not phased by our doubts. There's something in our doubts that he sees that is true and real, 
and causes him to trust us even further. So I want to press into it because I don't want you just to question the reality of the resurrection today. I want you to question the impact of the resurrection. The resurrection is real. It's happened. That's history. And we have hundreds of years of church history that declare that people who follow Jesus contribute to this world as much as those who claim his name has hurt this world. And so I want to look and answer two questions. Why did they doubt? But also, why did they worship? And in so doing, I hope that you might question yourself. Why do you doubt? Why do you worship a resurrected king in Jesus? Let us not take this as face value in family tradition, but let us press in and go, if the resurrection is real, it was meant to impact us, not just on Sunday, when we can declare easily together with song and loud voices, but on Monday, when it becomes so easy to forget, when the chaos of life floods back when we see the front page of the New York Times. Why did they doubt, and why did they worship? First, let me say again, Jesus isn't phased by their doubts. He's not phased by yours either. Doubts of his reality, doubts of what he wants, doubts about if he's going to be good in this situation, in your circumstances, he's unfazed by those questions. He invites you to ask them. He invited them in their doubts to come. He promises to be with the doubters. So you're in good company. But he also says that doubters can worship him. See, I think religious circles have told you not to ask questions. Religious circles have even said, until you cannot doubt, don't come. And Jesus declares something better than religion every single time. He invites you to worship. And in many ways, that was the plan all along. That you would start in doubt, and that in worship, you might experience him surprising and overwhelming your doubts. Any questions you have, that you discover he is better. But let's ask the real question, what are they doubting? Because when we hear doubt, we tend to think disbelief. We tend to think they're not, not believing what they see. But that's not what's going on in this passage. They've already done that. We've heard of doubting Thomas. We've heard him say amongst the disciples, oh, you're telling me he's risen until I see him and touch him, not real. And then Jesus shows up. And he's like, okay, <laughs> no questions anymore. I'm sorry. They're not questioning the reality in this passage. There's no doubts there. The doubts are in the impact. What does this mean now? See, we know that because this is the, the Greek language, which the New Testament was written in, has different words for doubts, even though English tends to reduce it to one. There is a word for doubt that means disbelief. It means that they are not really believing what they are seeing or trusting in it. But this is a different word. This doubt does not mean disbelief. It actually means a double stance. It's the idea that you're on the fence between two options, that you're wavering. This is real, but do I like it? <laughs> I see it with my eyes, but what is it going to mean for my life? It's the idea that you're standing at a crossroads. And you see the two options very clearly. But you're wavering between whether or not you want to choose. And when we understand the doubt in that way, we see that they're doubting what we often doubt. 
See, the first thing that they're doubting is, is this really the way to God's abundant life? See, they followed Jesus and they heard him teach that he had a plan for them, that he had a kingdom that was going to be theirs. And in his kingdom, when he reigned, they would experience life and joy and peace and wholeness. And they interpreted it in the way that their bias had led them. They thought he was going to be a political leader that would overthrow the oppressive Roman government that had been oppressing their ethnicity and every other ethnicity in the area. And they thought Jesus was finally going to conquer them. And that's going to be good for everybody, but especially for us. And then he died, and then he resurrected, and now he's telling them, I'm going to leave you so the Holy Spirit can come, but I'm also going to be with you always. And they're like, that sounds great. What do you mean? Is this really the way, Jesus? It's not what I expected. See, they thought he was going to triumph and give them something on earth in the form of power and prosperity that would cause the role reversal of society. They trusted in a political king, and Jesus was much more than a political king. He was the powerful king of all kings. He did not come to establish Israel, but he came to destroy everything that was destroying humanity, to establish a kingdom that could reign over every person and yet not destroy every person. Then in his reigning, they could realize the abundant life, every soul, every person. But the second question they had to be asking is one that we ask maybe more often. Does it really matter? Does this really change things? I know it's different. No one's ever died and risen from the grave and then declared to be the king of kings. I know it's different, but does it matter? See, they had to have doubted just like us because they didn't know what was to come. They didn't know after Jesus ascended what was going to happen. They didn't quite grasp it. And so they were wavering. We've followed him and we've seen him do miracles. We see him now in his resurrected state. But what is it going to mean for tomorrow? And any of us who have proclaimed faith in Christ, we've felt that. We've been on these highs of worship. We've seen him do really miraculous and cool things. We've seen him surprise us. And then the next challenge comes and we're like, but is he going to do it again? I've seen his goodness, but will his goodness last? I've seen his goodness, but I want something that's different than what he's telling me. Is that going to be good? Does the resurrection matter for my life? All of that is just a variation of the question of, does it really work? Does it really work to follow Jesus? Is it really good for life every single day to follow him over following my feelings or my rationale? I'm pretty smart. I got a lot of good wisdom. I can figure this life out. Do I really need Jesus? Does it really work? I wonder if you see yourself in them. See, when it comes to Resurrection Sunday, we can say, if I was only there, if I was only there in front of Jesus at the tomb and I saw the angel, it would be different. But we see in this passage of great honesty from the scriptures. It would be no different. You'd have the same doubts. You'd have the same questions. And so the question for you today is, why do you doubt? 
And what is it about God that you doubt? What is it about his role in your life that you question? But maybe go a little bit further. What's behind your doubts? We love to pretend that intellectualism is. Well, I've just been rational enough to discover that God is blah, blah, blah. But more than likely, our doubts are actually motivated and driven by emotionalism more than intellectualism. My doubts are not dissuaded because I study the scriptures a lot. My doubts are not created because I don't have enough knowledge. My doubts tend to rise up when I see the name of Christ used in abusive manners. Or when it's used against me in abusive manners. So many of the doubts that I hear are born from the pain they've experienced in religious circles or seen from religious leaders or those who want to claim to be more than it's born from a true intellectual exploration of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. See, our doubts are born often because of what we have experienced and felt in this life. And we can stack the pains up and go, if God is good, why the pain? We often forget if God is good, look at the blessings. And what I'm encouraging you to do in this is to doubt your doubts, to question them, to explore them honestly, to be like the disciples that say, I could worship, but I have questions. I'm unsure. I'm wavering at times between one or the other. Why would I tell you to doubt your doubts? Because you are not God. You're not. And you are not all-knowing. I'm reminded of that every morning when I'm like, today's going to be the perfect day. <laughs> and then if I stop in Starbucks, I'm like, this is way too slow. <laughs> All I asked for was a pike, <laughs> the splash of cream, two sugars. I don't understand. <laughs> because I cannot control others. I cannot control the annoyance that rises up inside of me. And if I cannot control that, if I cannot determine the outcome of my own perfect day, why would I ever think I could control the God of the universe and what he's about and what he's going to do and if he's real and if he's going to be good? Why would I trust my own thoughts and my own doubts as opposed to trusting his truth and his reality and what he has done time and time and time again? I'd love for you to doubt your doubts. But beyond that, I'd love for you to deal with your doubts. It is easy for us to go through life with ever questioning how we're really feeling, what we're really thinking. Because there's a next task and a next achievement to accomplish. There is plenty to do. And if there's not, New York will remind you there's plenty to do. But today I want to encourage you to deal with your doubts. And in this passage we see the way you deal with your doubts is not by analyzing, but by worshiping. The way the disciples dealt with their doubts was they coupled their doubts with worship. And I invite you to do the same. Now, what do I mean by worship? You're like, singing? Really? <laughs> no, that's our modern expression of worship. And part of that is that singing is magical. Anyone who's listened to Ed Sheeran knows that's true. 
Because singing awakens the emotions and the affections and the thoughts and your body, if you like to dance, it awakens your full self in an expression of enjoyment of song. It is pure expression of worship. And it's a magical experience that shapes the brain, it shapes the thoughts, it even changes your body's feelings. That's why we do it. But the scriptural meaning of worship is different. See, when it says they worshipped, the actual meaning is what we saw earlier in the passage, where the women who met Jesus, they got down on their feet, in the, uh, on their hands and knees, and kissed the ground and kissed his feet. That's what it meant for them to worship. You're like, I'll take the singing. Thank you. But what it was, was this physical representation that there is a new priority in my life and there is a new pursuit in my life. That though I have doubt, though I have question, my priority are not my doubts, my priority are not my feelings, my priority are not my to-do list, my priority is Jesus. Because no one else has risen from the grave. No one else has been crucified for my sins. No one else has done whatever it takes that I would experience the love of God poured into my life, that I would know goodness every day. It's a new priority. And that new priority leads to a new pursuit. I want to show you Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, because it describes worship in this way. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. This is the pursuit. The idea that Jesus is pursuing what is good for you. Jesus is pursuing what is pleasurable for you and what was perfect for you. And he means you individually, not just you corporately. He wants the you corporate for sure, but he knows it's a collection of you individuals. Your good, your pleasure, your perfection. He's after it. And so he's saying, then give me your bodies so that I can lead you into what is good and pleasing and perfect. That's worship. A new priority, a new pursuit. But again, I want to ask the question, why were they worshiping? And you know what's interesting? I don't think they knew. I don't think they knew the fullness of why they were worshiping. They saw the resurrected Savior. They said, this is worthy of worship, but they didn't know the impact. They didn't know what was going to come next. They just said, I will worship him no matter what comes next. That's called faith. (laughs) That you will choose to follow him when you don't see around the corner what's coming in life. You will choose to follow him when he says, do this, even though you don't know the pleasure you're going to experience. He says, you know the pleasure you're going to experience with the behavior and customs of this world, but I have different pleasures. Trust me for it. Why were they worshiping? See, the scriptures describe how you can see in the mirror dimly in this moment. But one day, when you see Jesus face to face, you'll see it very clearly. It's the idea that after a shower, there's steam on the mirror and it slowly goes away. 
And you can finally see to just shave the neck because no one wants a neck beard. <laughs> you can finally see clearly. See, when you start to worship, the fog starts to go away. The steam starts to disappear. And you can begin to see clearly what God has for you, that it is good and it is right. And so even in your doubts, when you couple them with worship to deal with it, you begin to experience the impact. And the impact comes in layers. At that moment, they did not know that 40 days from that moment, the Holy Spirit of God would fall on them, give them new language and new power, and that they would set off a movement that would completely change the world forever. They did not know that shortly after that, they would see someone on the street lame and heal them. They did not know that there would be an overwhelming reality that it was not just for the Jews, but also for those they called Gentiles. And so that it would cross ethnic and racial boundaries and unite cultures in a way that nothing else could. They did not know what was to come. The impact comes in layers. And what I want you to see is that the impact in your life will also come in layers. And I just want to end by closing in on three layers that you're going to experience. When you start to worship Jesus, the first layer is an impact of your body. See, he says, give your bodies as living and holy sacrifices. That's a form of worship. Your body gets transformed when you worship Jesus. It says you go from someone that doesn't experience and feel God to the temple of the living God where God comes and resides and lives inside of you. And so your body no longer becomes something to worship as our society often does or even to optimize. But your body comes as something to experience the full pleasure and joys of God and service to Him. But it's not just killing yourself for the good of others. It's blessing yourself for the good of others. That you get to experience God who wants your body to be made whole, to be made healthy, to be made complete again. He sees the brokenness. He sees the destruction. And in layer on layer, He wants to change you. And I say that because the disciples were looking at the resurrected Jesus in bodily, physical form. They could touch. They could eat with Him. They could experience Him. And a different view of Jesus caused a different view of self in them. That their body could take on a different purpose, knowing that it would never decay ultimately, that it would be restored to a resurrection form, so they could have the courage to put it on the line, to risk it. Not just to risk it, but to enjoy it. But it also changed the view of others, that everybody mattered, not just them. That anyone that they thought as other than themselves whether by look or culture or ethnicity. They changed. They went from a Jewish-centric nation where they were raised and taught that they were going to be triumphant to extending their treasure, their God, to those who are not of their nation. That is a racial diversity that that diversity and equity position at your workplace would love to have. And it's the spirit that brings them in unity to say, I value every culture and ethnicity 
I just declare it to be beautiful only when it is together with one voice and one purpose. The view of the body changed. And because the view of the body changed, the value of the body to be able to do it changed as well. See, God wants your body to be alive and well and wholly set apart for his purposes so that it can be offered as the sacrifice to his ends. And layer by layer, you will experience a transformation of your body as a temple that God loves to dwell in and speak to you in. But the second layer, moving beyond the body, is that of the mind. It says it's going to change the way we think. That's what it says in Romans 12. It changes your mind. See, and this is good news because it is easy for our minds to hold us captive. Our minds hold us captive through our anxieties. That fear comes and tells us a story that's not God's story, and then we shrink. We shrink to what we can control. When God wants us to be free and courage to go out to what he has for us. His perfect love casts out fear by changing the way we think. Not just in anxieties, but in other stress responses. Anger or running or avoidance. Our mind begins to be changed and renewed in such a way that we do not have, are not held captive, but we are set free. To have minds of peace, minds of love, the minds of Christ. And layer by layer, our minds begin to change, our brain begins to get rewired as we think his thoughts. But the third layer is our purpose. Our purpose begins to have eyes outward towards renewal and restoration. See, the scriptures describe Jesus' resurrected body as the first fruits of all creation. That what happened to him will not only happen to you, but will happen to the world. That we are headed towards a trajectory where the end of all things, where he makes all things new. And so your purpose is say, how do I bring the newness of the kingdom into my work and into my home and into every relationship? And so you look, as Jesus did, out to the world, believing that brokenness can be restored. Believing that reconciliation is not only possible, but probable by the power of Christ. If he rose from the dead, what can he not do in your life and in your workplace and in your home and in your families? The power of the living God now lives inside of you. And as you worship, layer by layer of resurrection impact is what you experience. Because I don't want you just to believe in the reality. I want you to live in the impact of the resurrection. Because I want that. And all of that is the result of Jesus doing a work of renewal inside us. See, it starts with a soul being set free. Jesus died on the cross to defeat Satan, sin, and death. To destroy God's enemy who is your enemy and is trying to hold you back. To destroy the enemy of your behaviors of rejection against God so that it would no longer have power over you in the patterns of mistakes in your life that you just call flaws or mistakes. But also to set you free from any fear of death, being overwhelmed by the death of a loved one, but to believe that the resurrection is real because the tomb is empty forever and finally. Then Satan's defeated, sin is dealt with, and death no longer has power anymore. Because there is something beyond the grave. It is a soul being set free. 
It is moving from what Thoreau talked about of quiet lives of desperation that we all live to in Jesus living loud lives of declaration that there is nothing that can overcome you. You may face trials, but fear not. Jesus has overcome and he wants to do it for you. And so today, may your soul come awake. May your soul be born again. May your soul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be transformed. That layer of resurrection impact begins today as you deal with your doubts through worship. So the restoration of the soul leads to the restoration of your body and your mind and your purpose. This is Resurrection Sunday. This is the reality of He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Jesus, you are King of kings, Lord of lords, resurrected Savior. You are establishing your kingdom today in us because you want to see it through us. You love each and every person. You love this city. And you are forming a resurrection people with resurrection power. And we choose today to embrace that. We choose to worship you. We choose to deal with our doubts through giving you our lives. We pray this in Christ's name.